0: Well, I know uh, many of us, uh, many of you, many of us, we're, we're kind of swept up in the excitement right now of uh, this year's World Series. I'm not a baseball fan. I only ever watch the World Series, and, and that's just till about 10.30, and then I go to bed and wake up and find out who's won. Uh, but, but with the Braves, this is obviously much more exciting for us. And so uh, come, from, come from behind, victories like last night are very thrilling. Uh, I did not stay up to watch the end of it. I went to bed at the top right after the top of the sixth inning, right before all the excitement started. So, I totally maybe if you're superstitious, you might want me to go to bed every night if they're losing. But, uh, first thing I did is check the box score, watch the highlights, and it was it was neat to see. But as part of my sermon research this week, I was actually kind of looking for an illustration of, uh, and so I was searching for. You know, notable come from behind wins and exciting finishes, that kind of thing in sports. And so I say that as one who I can watch a game and an exciting game, and it could be my team. And I, I just do not remember details of events like that. So I can't remember song lyrics, uh, you know, anything like that. I have a very, very poor memory. So, but YouTube is very helpful in this regard for people like me. And so several years ago, the, the, the one that stuck out to me as I watched a few of these stories in the fall of 2013, this touches, I know, close to the heart of many here, there was a rather dramatic victory, or for many of us, it was a painful loss, uh, if you count yourself as a Georgia football fan. And so, yes, I was going to scrap this illustration if they lost yesterday, but I feel like I'm, on, I'm okay today. But it, it's, it was, it's been dubbed the, the miracle at Jordan-Hare. And so Jordan-Hare is the football stadium of Auburn University. And so they say a miracle took place on November 16, 2013. So you remember this? Georgia was playing at Auburn, and, and the Tigers were up uh, by 20 points with 10 minutes left to play. And Georgia battles back, and they end up with a one-point lead and so under two minutes to play. And so Auburn has the ball, and the Georgia defense is holding them deep in their own territory and they get pushed back all the way to the 23-yard line, their own 23-yard line. They're four, it's fourth and 18, 36 seconds left on the clock, 77 yards from the end zone, and any chance of, of victory. Georgia fans ready to celebrate. Victory seems certain, and that Auburn quarterback steps back, and he throws this long high pass, and it's into triple coverage. I mean, there are Georgia jerseys all around this ball as it's coming down. And yet Georgia players, instead of batting it down, they tip it up in the air and it goes right into the hands of the Auburn receiver who runs it in for a touchdown. And uh, you know, Georgia fans left in stunned disbelief and the Auburn fans, obviously, they're in jubilation. So I say all that and I'm making another connection to something that uh, Patrick introduced me to a word uh, through this series and introduced this word to us a few weeks ago. And the word is one that was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, you uh, catastrophe. Remember him talking about this. And so that simple Greek prefix, you, EU, E-U the uh, Greek word for um, evangelism, uh, euangelion. And so uh, this is gospel. And so the gospel is good news that's at you. So this is, that, so good's attached to catastrophe. Catastrophe, like it's unraveling, it's, it's disaster. And so it's a good unraveling, a good disaster. So we think of a catastrophe as some sudden uh, unforeseen disaster that brings these awful consequences, right? That's how we think. Like an earthquake with a tsunami that we've seen this in, in, in even recent years, where just this death and destruction that's left in its wake, it's it's catastrophic, we say. But when you add the little prefix EU to that, it's we're saying it's a good catastrophe. It's a good disaster. A good Sudden turn of events through very dark circumstances. And so Tolkien says, it's a word that refers to the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces your heart with a joy that brings tears. And so if you were an Auburn fan that day, you could say that you witnessed a U catastrophe. And so Georgia fans, I'm sorry, just, just go with that. Wear that hat for this morning. But Tolkien wanted to write his story so that when all hope seemed lost, when disaster seemed imminent, joy would suddenly break through. That's what he's talking about. So when evil fails, when righteousness suddenly and unexpectedly triumphs, I'm not making any comparison between evil and righteousness of Auburn and University of Georgia or anything like that. But when, when that happens in some sudden and unexpected way, that's you, catastrophe. And so, Tolkien says in this vein, "...it's the mark of a good fairy story, a good fairy tale, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, when the catastrophe, it it gives a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears." So he would go on, as describing this, he would say, the ultimate the ultimate eucatastrophe in the history of the world is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the good disaster of the cross that, that, that brought this sudden hope in the midst of despair through the resurrection, that's the ultimate picture of this. And, and that gospel eucatastrophe, he goes on to say, it, it draws out in us what he calls the essential Christian uh, emotion, joy, this happy relief that leads even to tears. And so, you catastrophe, that's, that's the word I want us to kind of keep in mind this morning. And so, thank you, Patrick, for introducing this word to me, our resident Tolkien scholar over here. And so, from Esther chapter 8, Esther, uh, from this point on, it's one big you uh, catastrophe. It's a good unraveling. We say, how so? I mean, if you've been with us, I. I don't realize some of you haven't, and I'm not going to be able to back up and, and capture the whole story again, but hasn't the happy ending already come? Remember where we were in chapter 7? Hasn't Haman already been hanged on his own gallows that he made from Mordecai? Hasn't the story basically kind of wound down? Is it, is it not over? And they all live happily ever after, right? Not yet. There's still a lot that's hanging in the balance. Where we left off. And so, yes, Haman, the one who devised this very evil edict to, to uh, eradicate the Jews, it's 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 uh the one who designed that is gone. But remember, you can't just revoke a law of the Medes and Persians. And so the edict still stands, the king's command to to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews, to wipe out the Jewish people, God's covenant people, the hope of Messiah. That that's to wipe that all off the face of the planet. That that edict is still in place. How will God uh, move against an irrevocable decree of death? That's the question we're left with. And so, what we're going to see is there is going to be this sudden, stunning reversal. A good unraveling. A catastrophe that leads us to catch our breath, to, to lift our hearts, to cause our tear-filled joy to swell. I hope that's the case this morning as we walk through this chapter. And so let's look at these wonderful redemptive reversals that we're going to see here and just marvel as we've been seeing throughout this study at the invisible hand of God that's at work here in these. So first reversal that we're going to see is in verses 1 to 2. And I would say it this way. Presumptuous power is thwarted. Presumptuous power is thwarted. So look look with me at verse 1 of chapter 8. And we'll just kind of walk through the passage together and see these reversals. So verse 1, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. He's relative. He's a fellow Jew. Well, The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, as he's going through his execution, and he gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, that's two verses. But if you've been with us through this study, you could never have anticipated or expected what we just read there when we were back in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. This is crazy. This is an absolutely stunning change. The custom at this time behind what we're reading in these verses was that any traitor to the crown would have all of his goods, his household confiscated by the king and redistributed. And so, now the king gives Haman's house to his queen, to Esther, who then gives it to Mordecai. And now Mordecai becomes number two in the empire. He's replacing the one who was trying to kill him that morning. This is all in one day. A lot of this is happening in one day. What a remarkable change of power and of and of possession here so this this ring that Haman the the the, remember Haman who built those uh, that who is this wicked enemy of the Jews who plotted the genocide of the Jews because his ego was bruised essentially and who and who and who built these gallows on his own property to have Mordecai his enemy impaled on them because he wouldn't bow to him. This this ring that gave the wearer of that ring the right to do anything he wanted in the name of the king, this ring is now on little lowly Mordecai's finger. This, This exiled member of God's covenant community people. And the whole of Haman's estate, all of his possessions, the land that the gallows were built on to kill Mordecai, All of that now belongs to little, lowly Mordecai. This one of God's exiled covenant people. It's an amazing reversal. And so God's people, they're threatened with total annihilation, and now they have this advocate at the highest level in the empire. Little, lowly Mordecai, now prime minister of the Persian empire. In a day, everything turned. Sudden, unexpected, unbelievable. I'm just saying as we as we see this, do you see some, some commonalities between this little episode in this little corner of the Bible of Esther chapter 8 and the larger storyline of Scripture? Well, we, we're not totally shocked because we see this playing out over and over again, and we certainly see how it connects with and points to Christ and his story. I mean, consider the surprising lowliness of Jesus' kingship when He comes in the incarnation. He, he left the glories of heaven, the eternal Son of God, and He entered this lowly world, the King of kings, born in a stable. Unseen, hidden, on the outskirts of civila- civilization in this backwoods little village of Nazareth. Who, who would ever be significant to be born in Nazareth? From the very moment he's born, he's attacked there's an there's an edict against his life and and against those who were born at that time to for those children to be murdered. this little lowly king attacked from the start at his coronation he he rides in and entered the royal city on a donkey and his coronation moment was what it was the cross this crown of thorns pressed into his brow and as a a mockery of him. But what happened? He rose from the dead. This little one, this overlooked one, King Jesus. And he reverses the way, the whole way we view power. From his earliest days to his dying breast, he was threatened by people with this presumptuous power and wicked power, their evil muscles flexed against him, from demonic spiritual forces and those that were impacting human people at the time and those leaders in the religious community and in the government who were who were attacking Christ, yet He through weakness reversed and triumphed over and thwarted the res- presumptuous power of the wicked. That's the Gospel. That's the, that's the hint in verses 1-2. to two. It, It's a picture of these, these redemptive reversals that we see over and over of God's kingdom that says... God will certainly, will inevitably reverse the presumptuousness of wicked power. Always does. He's guaranteed that it will happen. This is the hope of our coming King when Christ returns, that it will happen fully and finally. Psalm 2. I mean, but we see when G- who's gonna, who will be exalted? It's the humble. Who will be brought low? It's the proud. It's a kingdom turned upside down. Sermon on the Mount, we see this throughout. It's not the ones with the most pride and power and prestige and possessions, all that. No, for, for, for much of the Esther story, what does we think about our own lives? We look around the world, we read the headlines. It leads us to think, well, maybe that's actually true. Maybe, maybe the one with the most power and, and, and possessions and, 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 and authority, the ones with the most swagger, the ones with the, with the most muscle and influence, maybe they're the ones that come out on top in the end. Maybe that's really the world we live in. But then you get to chapter 8 of Esther. And we see this ring change hands and Haman's estate given over. And the wicked and presumptuous power is thwarted. It's a massive reversal. And we, and we see the sure and certain story here of, of God's kingdom. It's a kingdom that will not fail. as we are saying. I just say, church, dear friends, I mean, there's glorious application here for us. As we think about our lives, I, I, I know that the, we see the absolute insanity in the world around us. And, we, and we're impacted by this. I don't mean like we're totally immune from this. We, we're shaped by this. We see the insanity of our own hearts. We see wicked people flaunting their power and strutting around, exploiting and abusing people. And justice seems to prevail. We see, we see evil flaunted and celebrated. We see so much presumptuousness all around us. And we should be concerned. Don't get me wrong. But but we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be so impressed by that. This is a good check for us. Brothers and sisters, don't be fearfully impressed by power that you see around you. Don't be fearfully impressed when when those who seem unstoppable... um, are carrying out their very perverted plans. Don't be fearfully impressed with those who have power and who are the enemies of God and His people. Don't be afraid. I mean, let me say maybe another way about applying this and thinking about this. Don't also don't be seductively deceived into chasing after power and possessions and prestige and thinking that's their hope. And ho- are we tempted that way? I mean, we despise it in others, but we secretly we want it more than anything else. I mean, just imagine the temptation it probably was for Mordecai to put that ring on his finger to occupy that seat of power, to have that estate in the middle of the city, prime real estate, and then to give no thought to God, no thought to His grace that worked to bring this incredible reversal that put him in that position. Just imagine that temptation. And this is one we face, isn't it? No, but to, to somehow think, though, I mean, he could have thought "If Esther. Now we have the power. We got it. Let us depend upon our power. Let us do everything we can to get more of it. That would have been a temptation. I mean, we live in a world that prizes this stuff. That, that we, and we shouldn't be fearfully impressed by it. And we shouldn't be seductively deceived into chasing after it, making it our goal is we love power, we love love influence, we love prestige, we love independence, we love control. And and the reason we love that, because to have those things, I don't have to be needy. I don't have to trust God. I don't have to depend upon Him to to work in ways that trump power. C.S. Lewis said, We often regard God as an airman regards His parachute. It's there for emergencies because He hopes He'll never have to use it. Is that how we relate to God? I think it is a lot of times, isn't it? There's this dependence on our own strength, our own ingenuity, our own abilities, our own smarts, our own power. And God is just kind of regulated to a parachute that's there. Sure, but we we hope we never have to depend on Him. Or are we the ones who see God's story written as those who are overlooked, those who are little and weak and marginalized and needy, who have no hope of redemption unless God intercedes. And we live with that sense of total dependence day after day on God, believing and embracing the fact that it really is the poor in spirit who are truly blessed. God promises this this redemptive reversal where the proud will be laid low, the humble will be raised. And if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, you've already experienced this and measure. You, you may not have had, you know, great positions of power before. You may not have enjoyed this incredible prestige and had, you know, people bowing down to you and all the wealth in the world. But you were clinging to whatever you did have. You were hoping in those things. And yet God graciously opened your eyes to see the emptiness of any of those pursuits and showed you your absolute need for Him, for grace. That was, that was God's gracious work in your life, to humble you to, so that you could be saved. This is, the, this is the first reversal here in chapter 8, the reversal of power. The second reversal, we keep moving, is the reversal of the threat of death. So we see this second reversal, i just say it this way, desperate pleas for deliverance are answered. Desperate, pleas for deliverance or answer. Verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now just pause for a second there. We'll keep reading. Note a couple things about what she's doing here. First, see how utterly desperate she is. I mean, this picture. See her posture. Hear her tears, her groaning, her begging. She is completely desperate. And secondly, note that she is utterly at risk here. She's at risk. You may say, yeah, but Haman, but uh, Haswaris, he's already defended her once. Haman's dead, so he's not a threat anymore. He's, been, he's already, she's already received Haman's estate, so she's well off. You know, but remember, this is not a predictable ruler. This guy is a tyrant. He just acts upon whims, and he's all over the place, and so he—you can't predict how he's going to behave. And so she still does not have some all-access pass to approach the king whenever he whenever she wants. There's still an axe man standing there, just waiting for someone to approach and 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 the king without being invited. And if the king doesn't extend the golden scepter, then that person's dead immediately on the spot. I mean, this is still the reality, and so she's risking death. Once again, she's done this once. She's doing it again here to appeal for the rescue of God's people. And so until that golden scepter goes out, she's facing immediate execution, that potential. So again, you think it would be very easier for her at this point. Like, why go through this again? She's already risked her life once. I mean, Haman's gone. She's in the inner court. Mordecai's got Haman's estate. They're well off. They have... They have the king's ring. They have power. They have possessions. Who cares about the community? I'm done risking my life for for others. I'm just going to kind of climb the ladder here. That's not what she does. You find her to be this this sacrificial servant who lays down her life to bring life to God's people. And what happens? Verse 4, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And there's this collective sigh of relief for us, the readers. That he didn't kill her. He, he, he's listening to her. Her desperate pleas are being heard by the king. Then she makes her plea in verse 5. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, just notice the way he's, she's addressing him here. And if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes... Then what? Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are, all, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So he cannot revoke his first decree, but he can issue authority for some kind of counter decree. And that's what he does. And So verses 9 to 14, you begin to see, as we read through this, you'll see, if you, if you were with us back in, in, in chapter 3 of this, uh, of this book, um, you'll, you'll see it's like an exact recap of, of what was written back then. Haman's evil edict, it's, it's like a mirror image here and in, in chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. And so if you put these side by side, it's like Esther is saying this, this counter edict is the absolute, complete, total, utter reversal of everything that Haman had edict, his edict before. Everything's been reversed. So verse 9. Yeah, The king's scribes were summoned at that time, just like Haman. That's exactly what happened. In the third month, which was the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written, just like Haman, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces. That's Again, the language is just like Haman. From India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, same reach as Haman's edict. To each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, just like Haman's. And also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, exactly the same. And he sealed it with the king's signet ring, same. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, just like Haman riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Again, that's saying total reversal. Utter reversal. He goes on, verse 11. He sent sent this out, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, and notice the language, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Recognize that language. Haman's Edict in reverse. Any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day, again, just like Haman's Edict, one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being. Publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. What a reversal! From Prime Minister Haman's evil edict to Prime Minister Mordecai's rescuing edict. God's people have been given this this rescuing counter decree, counter edict from the king through Mordecai that would allow them to fend off any any who would attack them, and to preserve not just their lives but and not even just their line, but the but the hope of the Messiah. Ultimately, is what's at stake here. Now I know. Again, we're going to talk about this next week because the. The the edict is going to be carried out in chapter nine, as we're going to see. And I know this makes us a little uncomfortable when we read these words, and and we think, particularly in our context today, this just sounds so counter to everything we think of in terms of love and how we're to relate to others, that even those who oppose us. And so I'll talk about how we how we need to think about this passage next week, and and think about this decree and what biblical categories this this falls in for us, and how it fits within where we're at today. And so we'll talk about that next week. So just hold that thought, come back. But for now, I just want you to note the significance of this counter decree. It is, it is unexpected. It's not anticipated. It is never, ever, ever would anyone have thought that this was possible. It was This was not on anybody's radar. This is the wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles kind of moment here. And, and so God's people, they're, they're rescued through this shocking reversal, this you catastrophe, this counter decree that will give, that will give life to God's people throughout the whole world. I mean, this, again, how does that foreshadow something that's coming? This is, this is a shadow of the greater story of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, because of Adam's sin, representing all of humanity, we we sin in him. But because of that, God issued a decree of death upon the whole world. And that decree was irrevocable. God declared holy war on us because of our sin. He said, as my enemies, you must die. And again, that decree cannot be revoked. God couldn't just say, you know what? I changed my mind. I was just having a bad day. I'm feeling more generous today. Forget that stuff that I said about all who sin must die. No, our only hope is what? It's the counter decree. It's the counter decree of the gospel. Where the greater Esther named Jesus, he makes a plan He intercedes on behalf of his people before the throne of heaven. And he makes his plea on what? On what basis? On the basis of his blood, of his work. He doesn't just risk his life to make this happen, make this possible. He lays down his life. He swallows the wrath of God all the way down to its dregs for us so that the counter decree of life for God's people can be experienced. This is what he does. And we can now experience not, not the death that's been justly decreed because of our sin, but life that's graciously given. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see it in seed form here in Esther, don't we? It's just pointing ahead. It's not in full Romans 3 kind of form, but it's in seed form here. It's in order to experience the life of this counter-decree of the Gospel, we need a sacrificial servant who's willing to make an appeal before the King for us. And that's what Christ has done. Christ has secured our life. And listen, now we wait for His return. He's coming back. And the the holy war that we're not experienced, we're not in that time of holy war now, but it's, it's just set aside temporarily. The king's coming back. He's coming and there will be vengeance. And his enemies will pay. But as we wait now in this time, we'll talk more about this next week, but as we wait now though, we as God's people, the church, we're not in some physical holy war. Paul makes clear the battle lines have changed. The aim now is the heart. And, and, and the, the battle is in the spiritual realm of powers and principalities, Paul talks about. And our pleas, though, this is what I want you to hear. Our pleas now are heard. There's no longer any question whether or not God will extend his golden scepter to us whenever we say Father. No, that's settled. He's already welcomed us in Christ. We have access to God, Hebrews tells us, this, and makes it very clear, through Christ. Access is open. So as we wait, as we wait for Christ's return, we're we're, we're like Esther, but we have confidence though as as we make our pleas to approach the throne of grace, to ask over and over and over without ceasing for these redemptive reversals that God might work in every realm of life where there's death and there's death all around us, isn't there? We can ask God, we can plead for God to reverse these things. Even now in time, we know that coming, there's coming a day when it will all be reversed and all will be made new. But until that day, we can plead for God to change. We're not to give up hope. I mean, just think, church, where in your life does it seem impossible for redemption to have the final word? As you look around, it just seems so hopeless. It seems so dark and despairing. and It just seems so impossible. Is there some sin in your heart? It just—it's just so deeply rooted, and you just can't seem to can't seem to to see see progress, to see repentance, to see growth, to see change. It just seems so impossible. Is there—is there—is there there some marriage that you care so deeply about? Is it—is it a child you're so concerned—a son or daughter? Is there an area of culture in our culture? Is there a pocket of this community where you you're so just fraught? It seems so impossible the gospel's progress to the unreached in this world is that overwhelming listen because the counter decree has been issued and secured for us in christ because we have access now to the king's throne don't give up begging for deliverance go beg plead Access is open. Don't give up crying out for, for these redemptive reversals in every realm of your life, in your own heart, in your, in your family, in, in this church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. This is encouragement to us. We can hope for the most surprising and stunning reversals. God can do it. This is impossible what we're reading here in chapter 8, humanly speaking. God psh, does it in a day. He's able Plead with Him. There's hope, church. There's one more reversal that I want us to look at. Ah, That's not entirely true. That's like preacher talk. One more point. Reversal number three, though. One more that will be on the screen. There's a bonus one. And it's this. it's, re- it's a Pervasive sorrow and fear turn to joy and hope. This is how the chapter ends. So verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown and and a robe of fine linen and purple. Now again, if you're just joining us today, you're like, okay, that's interesting. His clothes and his description. No, but if you've been with us, you go back to chapter 4. This is a a markedly different wardrobe than we last saw Mordecai in. Back from chapter 4. Let me just read verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, about this edict, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So Mordecai has received this another stunning and sudden surprising reversal. He's left the sackcloth and ashes and now he's wearing royal robes, the robes of the king. By grace. Again, it's totally the redemptive work of God through no merit of his own at all. This is, this is totally changed for him. And this change of clothes brings out this change of heart among the people. So, verse 15, it goes on, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. You catastrophe. The sudden change, the sudden turn that brings about this beat of the heart and this catch of the breath and this joy that overflows in tears. And, and verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Now, again, you contrast with the state of their hearts and their attitude back in chapter 4, where we read, and in every province, again, note the parallel nature of these words, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Total reversal. This is, this is the reversals of God. This, this change of clothes, we can say it, it brings this change of heart. The people of God have gone from weeping and wailing and utter despair from 4th and 18, with almost no hope of victory, to, to now stunning rescue. And their hearts leap Here, at the end of this chapter. Again, this is the story of the gospel, is it not? We who should be left alone in our sin and sitting in our sackcloth and ashes, we have received a change of clothes. Christ has given us what? Robes of righteousness, His righteousness, that we didn't deserve, we didn't earn, that are not our own, they're His. And when we have that change of clothes by grace, then there should be this corresponding change of attitude, this change of heart and our despair and weeping are transformed into light and gladness and lightness and joy and celebration. That's what we should see. Because in a surprising and stunning way, we who are sinners have been redeemed and made saints. Saints of God. Grace has come, has rescued us, have given, has given us this new, abundant life where there was certain death. This is all of our stories if we're in Christ. I mean, the gospel brings this reversal of heart. It's joy. It's joy. And we're not to let go of that, to let, to let go of the hope that fuels that joy. Because it's sure, it's certain, redemptive reversals they will be ours in this life and we pray for that we plead for that now or in the life to come but it's certain no question this is why we can have joy even in the midst of sufferings because we know this day of final reversal is coming now let me add one bonus reversal this is the end of verse 17 and i thought of this late last night after i made the slides that was as this is during the Braves game so take it for what it's what it's worth but I would just call it a missional reversal i 've been thinking a lot about this this week, so it wasn 't just like totally random, but into verse seventeen, uh, this is just a very interesting way to end the chapter, isn't it? And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What do we make of that now we've we've got if you've been with us again through this study you 've come by now you 're kind of comfortable with the fact that the writer here never tells us what the motives of people are. We have no idea why they do what they do, what's really driving them. What's We're not told, told those things, the motivations. And so we've come to expect that. So maybe these people declared themselves Jews because that's who's sitting, sitting in the seat of power now, and they're thinking, hey, you know, for the sake of my own skin, I'm going to align myself with those people because I don't want to end up on the, the, the wrong side of the sword here. And so perhaps there was zero faith involved in this turning, but for some, probably, and this is sort of speculation because we're not told. Some may have thought, though, your God is great. <laughs> they've see, seen this total transformation, this total reversal, and they and they and they see how how this their God has rescued them, and how now they're worshiping Him, and they're saying, "We want in. We want in." I mean, just, if I could just make some application to us. Perhaps the reason more outsiders aren't drawn in in greater number is because we're not as captivated by the stunning reversal of the Gospel of grace that we've actually experienced. Our celebration really isn't that great. We don't over and over and over realize that this is a catastrophe and That's the only way We're here. We were goners. We were dead. We were without hope. Without God in this world. But God. Grace arrived. Grace changed everything for us. It's the only explanation for my life. And that should make us, brothers and sisters, dance with joy. Celebrate. G.K. Chesterton, in a wonderful comment, he says this. He says, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Say that again. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. That's, That's the story of Esther, I think. That's a good summary. No one would have written this story like this. No one. And yet God's God's riddles, God's surprising, stunning reversals—they they, they draw out worship in our hearts because we've been rescued. That's so much better than our solutions. God's gracious reversals, God's God's good disasters. Because they change us. They change the world. They change history. In If I go back to where we began, in Auburn, Alabama, they still celebrate. Yes, they're that obnoxious. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no. As it, When I was watching, the, again, I, I wouldn't remember this, but watching the videos, uh, Jay would probably remember this, but um, a week after Auburn broke the hearts of Georgia fans, they... They broke Alabama's hearts as well. Uh, The next week, the game was tied. Alabama had a field field goal attempt in in the last seconds of the game to get the win, and the kick was short. It was a long field goal attempt. The kick was short, and the return man for the Auburn Tigers ran it back for 107 yards for a touchdown and a win. It was quite a two-week victory dance for them. But in the, in the offseason, one of the videos mentioned this. In the offseason, while they were hosting recruits for some kind of, uh, you know, games just trying to, trying to get players to come and play for them, uh, they, they did something interesting. They actually painted on the field the exact steps that that Tiger return man ran, his route all the way from one end zone to the other to get that win as a, you know, kind of way to hype up their program. So they retraced that event. So everyone who walked into that stadium, everyone of those potential players who looked on that grass and their parents that are in the stands looking at these practices and these you know little exhibition games, everybody could look at those steps and say, that was a wonderful moment. Well, here's what I would love for us, church, and how I pray for us. Now and as we move ahead as a church, that we would beg God for... These redemptive reversals that would just stun us. That we would ask God for things that are humanly inexplicable and trust Him in faith. That He, he is able to do far more abundantly than what we even know to ask or imagine. We would beg Him for, for that in our lives. We wouldn't just settle for the way things are and just kind of hang on until Christ returned, But we would... We would ask Him to change us, to, to reverse these things that are wrong in us. We would ask Him for our families, for our marriages, for our children. We would ask this for our church, for for the reviving work of God's Spirit among us and to do things that seem so daunting to us and seem so impossible to be able to reach into this community. We would ask for our community and the Lord would bring in a harvest of souls and He would allow us as a church to be more meaningfully engaged with where we live and, and ministering in this place, in our nation, in our world. Not, not so that we win and we just pat ourselves on the back and hurrah for us. Not the Auburn Tiger way where we can just show ourselves off and and in that kind of way. But so that we can point to the fingerprints of God that stun us. And is and, and and look at that on the on the ground and we can say, Glory to God, He is so gracious, He is so powerful, He is so sufficient, He cannot be stopped. God, would you do this? Would you do this in that relationship that just looks like it's over? Would you do this with a child that seems so far from the faith? Would you do this in our church, in our community, and again, in our nation? Would you bring revival? And so so we can see and celebrate the, the footprints of God's reversing, stunning, rescuing work. Again, we know that in the end, to borrow another Tolkien phrase, everything sad is going to come untrue. All things will be made new. God, would you let us taste it now? Would you let it taste? Let us taste it now in part, so that in our hearts, in our homes, in our community, in our world, there might be these, these footprints of redemptive, reversible that would cause our hearts to just celebrate God's grace. I mean, this is the story of Esther gives us hope for this for us. Now, the story of Christ gives us more certain and sure hope, doesn't it? But brothers and sisters, let's let's press on, pleading, laboring, not give up. Let's pray. But we ask we ask for this now, Lord Jesus. We we don't deserve the things we're asking for, the things that are on our hearts. Probably even as I'm talking and come to mind for many of us, the the burdens that just seem like they can never be lifted from us, the the circumstances that just seem so distressing and impossible. The the, the changes that just seem uh, so unlikely in our in our lives, in our family, mm-hmm. in our church, in our community, Lord, and, and, and we don't deserve the redemptive reversals that we even long for. But we know, Lord, that you are gracious and you can give them. And so we ask that you would help us to help us to know where our battle truly is. That it's not with flesh and blood. It is in the spiritual realm. And so make us prayerful, Lord. Help us, not, help us to pray and not to lose heart. And, and, and visit the places, Lord, where, where there isn't hope. Where loss seems and defeat seems inevitable. Where destruction is the only potentiality we can even conceive of, Lord. Would you please put the marks of your hands and your feet on those places and reverse what seems to be so fixed so that the redemption so that redemption has the last and the loudest word we pray this all in your name Christ amen